Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so happy you tuned in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Endoband. Endoband provides you with a quick and easy workout on the go. Today's guest is someone I've known for a few years now, thanks to her amazing bagels in the Hamptons. I've had the opportunity to get to know Amanda Goldberg of Goldberg's Bagels as a fourth-generation business owner, as well as someone with type 1 diabetes. Every time we see each other, we check in and see how the other is feeling. So I'm thrilled to talk to Amanda more today about her health journey. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you. So happy to have you here. So tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. So I'm, well, I'm originally from New Jersey, but my parents moved out to the east end of Long Island, or as everybody knows, is the Hamptons, over 14 years ago. And um, my dad kind of just like took the world by storm out there, opening bagel stores throughout the North and South Fork. And I live, I went to high school there. Then I found myself in Miami for five years training um, for tennis professionally. And because of injury, I'm back up in the family business in fourth generation doing so. And doing well. Yeah, it's, ex- it's a lot of fun and exciting. Well, it makes me happy because I get to eat your delicious bagels. She recently introduced me to, what was the? It's a whole wheat sunflower flat. Flagel flat. flat, yeah. Really delicious. Check it out if you're out there. So you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when you were nine years old, and you shared with me that your mom was very involved in helping to manage your condition. In what ways in particular did she support you and help you navigate that diagnosis? Oh, it's I. My mom was such an all-star. I remember she carried this like three ring binder and we had these like charts and it would be my blood sugar, how much insulin, what I ate, the carbs. And we would go to the doctor every three months and she would hand this binder to the doctor and we would just discuss the whole thing. I mean, she we she took me to support groups as a kid. Um, when I was young, we did like I remember doing art therapy and I had a group of like kids that had what I had, which I didn't have in public school. And we would have our support group and then our parents, we would be in one room, the parents would be together so that they could share things. And then we'd all go out for dinner, like a group dinner. And then it, we went from, you know, kids stuff. And then we went to a more adult group where they taught us like how to drink in college and like real stuff like sex and like what you do and how to be safe and careful in all scenarios. That's so cool. I love that your mom took that initiative. It sounds like you worked as a team really well. Yeah, we really did. And, you know, she really made sure that I knew people that had what I had. So and I even went to diabetes camp one summer. I think I did two weeks. I hated it because I didn't like sleep boy camp and I don't I don't like structure and it was too structured for me. But like to see counselors and adults and kids that have what you have. It's it's really special to to see that. Are you still in touch with these people that you met in those early days? Not really. Our lives have thank thank you social media so we can see what each other is doing, but um not really, which is unfortunate because actually a couple of them I was I grew up with really. 
but you know, life takes us in different places. Absolutely. So when you were nine, you received this diagnosis. How did you get to that diagnosis? I was really sick as a kid. And I remember like the, the, it was like maybe six months before I was diagnosed, I would drink so much like tea, juice, soda, like whatever I can get my hands on. And then I would wake up every morning and I'd have like a coating in my mouth and I'd take a sip of water and the coating would like come. It, it was just gross. And I would go to the bathroom like 20 times a day. And I was in North Carolina visiting my aunt and she's a diabetic. And she says to my mom, Denise, I really think she's diabetic. And my mom was like, don't, nope, I'll deal with it when I get home. And at that point, I was going to a holistic doctor because I didn't like modern medicine. We were, you know, we, we didn't like modern medicine. So I sat in the doctor's office for what felt like hours peeing in a cup. And finally, at like seven o'clock at night, he was like, I think she needs to go to an endocrinologist. Like, I, I really think she could be diabetic. And uh, my dad made a phone call to a friend who was very involved in diabetes. And he set us up with a doctor the next day. And that afternoon, I was admitted into the hospital. And uh, they told me I had diabetes. And I was like, am I going to die? Like, that's my first thing. And they said, you're not going to die. But this is something that we can't cure right now. But we're going to teach you how to manage it. And what did that look like then? Well, unfortunately, the doctor that I started out with wasn't very good. So even my like my first month as a diabetic was very tough. You know, I had dietitians coming in saying, well, you can eat whatever you want. And, you know, I was nine and they wanted me to give myself shots. And like I was like, I was young. Like, how do you expect a nine year old to sit there and inject a needle in her leg? So through another friend, we found a doctor at Mount Sinai, who uh, Dr. Wallach, who I stayed with until I was probably really until I moved to Florida. Like I was about 20. She was pediatrics, but she kept me on because, you know, it's hard to shift when you have somebody who you trust and you've been with forever. Like, what are you going to like? How are you going to find another doctor to be that way? And it, actually, it's not until I went through my just most recent situation that I've found a doctor who I feel that way again with. It's something I can totally relate to because I went to my pediatrician until I was probably 23, 24. He knew everything since I was born. He had my records. He knew everything I had dealt with. I was seeing all these different specialists and I'd have to start over with them from day one. And he was the one person that sort of stuck with me the whole time and was like, we're cool with you coming here as long as you're cool with being in the waiting room with one-year-olds who are playing with all the toys. And I didn't really give a shit. Right. Well, why do you want to explain your your lengthy story a thousand times when you've done it a thousand times before? Absolutely. So for people who don't know, what is the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Type 2 is adult. They call it, quote unquote, adult onset diabetes. But these days with obesity and stuff, they're seeing it in children. Um, type 1 diabetes is basically that you're your pancreas doesn't work and doesn't produce insulin. It's usually brought on as a child. Um, but there are cases like in my aunt's case where she was diagnosed as a type 2 but was put on an insulin pump, you know, in at like in her 40s. So type 2 can be um, regulated with diet, exercise, and pills. Type 1, 
you cannot. You have to have in, you're insulin dependent. So you wear a pump, you give shots, you use a pen. There's different forms of um, ways to administer insulin. Got it. So you mentioned tennis and moving down to Florida. When did you start playing tennis and what role did that have in your life? And obviously, how did your diagnosis affect your life as an athlete? Well, I started playing tennis when I was probably three or four, like peewee stuff. And um, I didn't get competitive until I was probably in seventh grade. So I was, I guess, like 13. I would do, um, I would travel and do tournaments. And it was a learning process for sure. I mean, I'm diabetic. So, you know, you have to exercise brings your blood sugar down. So you have to modify what you eat. You have to modify your insulin. You have to lower your basal rate. I should explain what a basal rate is. So I wear a pump. What it does is it continuously gives me insulin. So it's like having an artificial pancreas. And then my doctor and I talk basal rates, which is basically the amount of insulin I get throughout the day. And then when I eat or my blood sugar is high, I have a ratio, like let's say it's one unit of insulin per 10 carbohydrates, 10 grams of carbohydrates. And my PDM does it for me. So I say, okay, my number is this and I'm going to have this amount of carbs and it'll figure it out for me. It's it's always a formula. It's always a job. So really, you know, being an athlete and a tennis player, like, you know, if I didn't feel like all of a sudden I'd be like, oh my God, I'm not, I can't concentrate. Let me go check my blood. And I'd be like 300. So I'd be like, oh, okay. So I have to give myself insulin. And then um, when you're low, you you shake and you don't feel good and you feel lightheaded. So you have to sit and deal with it until you can come back. So it's very difficult, especially competing because as, and being a young athlete, kids on the other end didn't understand what I was doing. So they get all upset and huff and puff on the other end because they wanted to go, go, go. And I was on a medical timeout. It's interesting because it's not the kind of sport where you just sort of sub someone in. This is a one-on-one sport. So that's got to be a really interesting dynamic. It is. And it's, it's difficult because uh, people don't understand it. You know, I think now people kind of get it and they're more empathetic. But back like 10 years ago, people were kind of like, I remember being in a really important tournament and um, my mom got in a fight with a parent because I had a pump that looked like a beeper and I had to sit on my belt, like on my waist. And this woman goes, what kind of parent lets their child go out in a court with a beeper? And my mother looks, she goes, it's an insulin pump. She's diabetic. And, you know, and refs would come to me and be like, are you waiting for an important phone call? And I'd be like, what do you mean? They would go, you're not, you have to take your beeper off to play. I said, this is my insulin pump. If I take it off, I could die. They just look at you like. How did it feel having to have those conversations and sort of educate people? Because clearly they didn't know. It was, um, I learned young. So. You know, at 13, 14, I was so used to saying it over and over again, like, oh, you know, can you make sure you do this because I'm a diabetic or, you know, I'm a diabetic. So this is what I have to do. Like, it's just it was just second nature at that point. Right. So then in your mid 20s, you experienced some new symptoms and you were diagnosed with Hashimoto's disease. Yes. What was your reaction to this additional diagnosis? Well, my diagnosis, even in my um, being hurt like with tennis and, and my limbs, to my diabetes, I, my body goes just is crazy. So with the Hashimoto's, you know, I'm training six hours a day. And all of a sudden, I'm like, why am I so tired? Uh, more than normal. 
And why am I getting puffy? Like, why is my face swelling? Why is my stomach bloating? So I went to my endocrinologist down there and I was like, I don't know what's going on. Like, I feel weird. And she's like, oh, like, okay, like, let's get some blood work. And then they sent me to like a liver specialist and the liver specialist was like, well, you know, maybe if, if worst case scenario, we'll take a biopsy. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like a bot, like to the point where the people in our building, because we have like, you know, the people in Florida, it's, you know, I, I was very close with all of them because I was living there by myself and they were like my second family. And um, I remember coming off the court one day and I felt so sick. I felt so tired that I called my mom and I was like, I think I need you to come down here. And it's funny because the woman who works at the building called my mom too and says, I, I think you need to come down here. She's not, she's, something's wrong with her. She had actually, she had dental work and she was all drugged up and she bought a ticket and she shot down and um, we tried to figure out what it was and we Google searched in my symptoms and um, we found actually a new endocrinologist at Mount Sinai who diagnosed me with the Hashimoto's and put me on a Synthroid and my thyroid situation. And then all of a sudden it got better. And that was, you know, that was round one. <laughs> so where does tennis fit into all of this? I was very in tune with my body and tennis made it that way. Even when it came to injuries, like I dealt with, I think I've had, uh, let's say like seven surgeries in five years and nothing diabetes related, but you know, like I had a, a foot situation where they thought it was a stress fracture, but I tore one of the most bizarre ligaments, the Liz Frank. No one's ever heard of a Liz Frank, yeah, no. you know, and I was like non-weight bearing for four months. And I had this great surgeon who, you know, got me back on the court. So every, and even when I had, I have also had a spinal fusion and, you know, I knew something was wrong. And I remember crying to the doctor and I'm like, I'm telling you something is wrong. You, you're going to see it. And then when he operated on me, he, he said to me, he's like, you're right. And I just, I just know my body. Like, I guess it's being a diabetic and feeling all these different feelings that you just, you just feel it. So you said you've had many surgeries that were not diabetes related. Were they tennis injuries? Yeah, they're all tennis injuries. Backs. I had two back surgeries, two foot surgeries, two shoulder surgeries, wrist surgery. And I think that's it. That's it. Oh, Is I it had, that's not enough. I had elbow surgery, but that's because I fell down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> and so what role does tennis play in your life now? Not a very big one. You know, I want to get back into it now that I'm I'm healthy. <laughs> I have I have my limbs are healthy. And so what made you transition from living down in Florida, playing tennis, really focusing your career on that or trying to make a career out of that to coming back to New York and being this fourth generation business owner? Um, well, I had to. My parents told me at when I had my foot problem that that was the last surgery and I have to come home, but I convinced them one more time to let me try. I have really very, very supportive parents. Like, oh God, they're they're too nice. I love them. But, um, you and know, you're an only child. I am an only child. So, yes. But I knew I've always known at a young age I wanted two things in my life. Well, maybe three besides a family. But, um, I wanted to be a professional tennis player and I wanted to go work in the family business. And I knew when tennis was over that that's what I was going to do. And I love it. I love meeting people and I love food and cooking and trying new things and bringing new things in. And it's just, it's just, it's special. It's special that family businesses still exist. And the fact that I'm fourth generation in it 
makes it even more special. Absolutely. So how did you know when your career was over? I had a spinal fusion and um, I fell and then it didn't really, it's funny because it didn't really show up until about two months later um, where I was back up in New York because this was actually, this was actually when the whole liver Hashimoto's thing was happening. And I finally got back on the court and I went for a forehand approach and my back gave out. And the very short story is that I ended up on a zero gravity chair for four days. And then finally my surgeon was like, listen, I have surgeries. He goes, come go to the hospital and go to the ER, get an MRI and we'll make it work. And they found that I fractured my sacrum and then I had a disc that slipped. And then you follow a few months later as the sacrum is healing because you can't do anything for it. I got in a car accident. So L4 collapsed onto L5 and then L5 herniated. And then literally, I want to say it's like up and down of um, they did a lot of uh, PRP and, you know, trying to figure out. What does that mean? Uh, platelet rich plasma where they take your blood, they spin it, and then they basically give you an epidural to put back the, the platelets to hope that it'll heal. It's 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 been proven to heal stuff like in the knees and the shoulders, but he just wanted to try in my spine to see if it would work. It didn't. We tried. and But then he actually, um, he actually is a genius, this guy. He um, took my disc out and put a spacer in. And then he was like, you know, we can close you up and then put rods in later on and just see what happens. But Literally five minutes before he rolled me into the operating room, he goes, well, me and the boys, which is like the top doctors of HSS, like in a corner, he goes, me and the boys just decided we're going to put like bone in your in your spine instead of the rods. So you'll grow your own bone around the cadaver bone. So I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) If you think it's going to work, I'm game. You're right, the genius like, I don't know <laughs> like, I don't know how to navigate this. And probably, so my operation was in December. The following September, I was back training full time. What year is this? This will be, actually, I'm coming up with a fourth year anniversary. Actually, I did already. Yeah, four years ago, almost to the day. And so how does it feel to not be playing tennis at this point? I had to go through like a lot of, uh, I had a, it was tough. It was, um, it was tough because as I was going through giving up tennis, I was also going through another situation with my body where, um, what I now know I was going through was insulin resistance. Um, so I had like, I got hit with a double whammy. And I was really lucky that I, I I told you about my friend Jess King. She got me through. You know, she's a she's an athlete, and she really like she said to me. I remember she goes, "We're working out twice a week. You're spinning five days a week. Like, why do you look puffy?" I was like, "Right, like it's crazy." And she said this to me in, in January, and then and we'd been working out twice a week since September. So I was like, all of a sudden I was ripped and then all of a sudden I was like puffy. So from January for like a whole year, my weight would just go up, 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 up. And it, it didn't look like, I, yeah, I looked heavy, but like 
as my I ex- remember it. You just looked puffy. You didn't yeah. look heavier. You didn't look fat. But it just, it was in swollen. your face. Yeah, swollen. swollen. And I remember, and like, I had, there's like pictures and I look and my arms were swollen. And my ex-boyfriend, who was very supportive, um, you know, he's looked at me. He goes, he goes, you just look like, he's like, I just want to take a pin and water and air is just going to come out of you. You know, that's what it was. And, you know, my, I actually, at that point, I had left the endocrinologist that fi- figured out the Hashimoto's because he, you know, he couldn't figure out what was wrong. You know, he put me on metformin, which is a type 2 diabetes drug. Um, it's supposed to suppress your appetite as well as help with insulin. And I remember him looking at me. He's like, you know, I just, like, he's like, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. He goes, you know, are you you're just, you just keep gaining weight. And I was like, well, I'm tired. He goes, you know, what do you eat? And I went through a list of everything I ate. And mind you, I don't eat gluten. I don't eat dairy. And I am a pescatarian. So, you know, he's like, you know, are you a closet eater? Like, that's something that you can. And I was I was so offended. And so after that appointment, we never went back to him again. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Endoband. For someone like me who spends way too much time on my laptop and also loves to travel, the ease of having my Endoband in my backpack or my suitcase allows me to work out anytime, anywhere. Endo stands for no days off. Stretch anywhere without having to go to the gym or pay for a class. The Endoband helps me wake up, fight midday fatigue, and get a mini workout in while traveling. Endo bands come in several different colors and can even wrap around your wrist like a bracelet. After working at events for many years, I've seen gift bags filled with a lot of crap that immediately gets thrown out. The endo band is the perfect item to include in your corporate programming or upcoming event gift bag as you can brand it with your logo. Then your employees or clients will have a useful product that will help them feel good and automatically associate it with you. Get your endoband at endoband.com and use promo code MVP for 20% off your entire purchase. That's N-D-O-Band.com, promo code MVP for 20% off. Your body doesn't take days off. Why should you? Now, back to the show. We went to two doctors out east where we live. And a different doctor said, are you a clot? Like they kept asking, are you a closet eater? Are you a closet eater? And I'm like, no, I barely eat as it is. And then um, we we got so desperate. And because I didn't know, I you know, they were trying to get me into um, trying to get in the Mayo Clinic and whatever. And then finally, I was like, you know, I'm going to call the Cleveland Clinic. And I called them up. I found like uh, an endocrinologist or that specialized and, you know, all these like crazy things. So I called up and we're, mind you, we're in the summer season of the Hamptons in, on July 4th week. I remember this. So I called them up and I was like, listen, like I sent them all my records. I did all the paperwork in like a day. And she looks at me, she goes, well, she goes, I have an opening on July 6th. And I look at my mom, she goes, book it. And the next day we flew to Cleveland and we went and we stayed for two days. I had, you know, appointments, blood tests, and they sent me home with these like these swabs to put in my mouth because they were trying to test cortisol levels. And they I mean, they they tested me for everything. So and this is before, you know, that you're resistant to insulin. This is before this okay. is as I'm as I'm finding out. Yeah. So I do all the tests. And all of a sudden, I get these weird phone calls from the Cleveland Clinic. It's like, 
oh, wow, your, your cortisol levels were like astronomical. Like, we're going to send you another test. Like, we don't know what happened. And then I get another phone call. Oh, all the tests are fine. They showed up okay. And I'm like, so you called me to tell me that my tests were okay. You called me to tell me that my tests were irregular. Can I talk to the doctor? Oh, well, um, I forget, I even forget the doctor's name. Understandably yeah. so. She, uh, oh, doctor whatever um, is no longer at the Cleveland Clinic. I was like, are you kidding me? Wait, after how much time? About a month. She didn't tell me. Nobody told me. I had these people telling me all these different things. And I'm dealing with this for a whole month. I'm feeling like crap. I can barely work out. I can barely, I, I, I don't work out. I go to work. I come home. I fall asleep. I eat a little bit of dinner and I went back to sleep. Like that's all I did. It was miserable. It was miserable. I was depressed. It was, it was awful. And a really good friend of mine was out visiting and she said to me, she goes, listen, she's like, my, my family knows this doctor in the city. He's great. He's like the doctor of the doctors. He doesn't accept insurance, but what good doctor does at this this day and age? But he'll charge you an arm and a leg, but he'll figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, he'll send you to someone that can. Called him up, fit me in two days later. He spent three and a half hours with me. You do not hear that. No. He sat there and my friend came to the appointment with me because I, you know, I just needed another set of ears. And, um, you know, he asked me like questions about my childhood and my diabetes and my injuries and where I lived and like these bizarre questions no one's ever asked me before. And three hours went by. Then he did the exam. He took a lot of blood and he goes, okay, I'll have answers in a day or two. He's like, you know, it could be a few things. You know, they thought at the time it was a pituitary tumor, which is like a tumor like basically on the back like of your sc- I guess your head and it's benign but it shoots cortisol which could be the reason for the bloating and the being tired and all that stuff so um you know he had all these these things so he was like let let me see what the tests come back and we'll figure it out he calls me the next day he goes are you in the city still he was like yeah why can you come in i need to take more tests i go back in take more tests are you feeling hopeful at this point yeah at this point, I knew I knew this guy was going to figure it out. Or if he didn't figure it out, he's going to figure it. Someone's going to figure it out in his circle. And um, I was like, OK. So, um, you know, he did more tests and then he calls me back in the next week and he goes, OK, you don't have the tumor. And I was like, oh, well, that was like the biggest thing. So I was like, OK, good. He goes, and I don't think it's anything with your adrenals and this and that. He goes, you know. I'm going to send you to my good friend across the street, Andy. He's an endocrinologist. And before I rip your adrenals out, he goes, go see, go see him. I think, he, I think he can figure it out. Call the doctor up, get an appointment, you know, three weeks later. I'm sitting, like we're sitting with this guy and my mom's with me. And he looks at all my test results and he looks down. He goes, you're insulin resistant. I was like, what does that mean? You know, like I, I've heard insulin sensitive where, you know, your body just absorbs, absor- like your body just is very sensitive to the insulin. I says, well, so what is resistance? He goes, well, he goes, you know, you, as a diabetic, you go through all these things and the insulin is your your cells are blocking the insulin. Because I remember I would check my blood. I'd be like 242 and I'd eat a salad and I would give myself, let's say, five units of insulin and I would check my blood three hours later and I'd be 252. 
What's the baseline? I like to keep myself really between, like, if I'm just sitting here talking to you, like, between 100, 150. You know, I like to have, I like to have very solid control. Um, But I had no control. Absolutely no control. So what was his recommendation given that diagnosis? So we changed my rates within the pod. Then he told me to stay on the metformin because I'd been on the metformin for two years now. And uh, then he put me on a, I had, I have to do a shot called Victoza. You know, they, you see commercials for it for weight loss and stuff like that, but it actually also opens up the beta cells so that your body can absorb insulin again. You know, it, it curbs your appetite. I was sick for two weeks on it, but um, I've been on Victoza now probably for two years and I'm, I'm in control again. I'm, I'm in control of my diabetes finally. Which is incredible. But it's interesting because at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned how your family was never really for traditional medicine, and now you're really relying on it. Yeah. So what's that like for you? It's tough. Um, to be honest with you, I, by myself, took myself off of metformin. So fi- now, finally, I, I don't take it anymore. I'm on the Victoza, and I'm on insulin. Um, I don't really... And even... As I was going through all of this, they sent me to a uh, psychiatrist because they thought maybe it was in my head too. And they, as in the doctors, okay. all the doctors, they they just and and I think it was a precautionary thing because I was going through like the depression and and anxiety. I would have like anxiety attacks like weekly. I even took myself off the drugs that he put me on because I I, I don't want to say I don't believe in it because I do, but at the same time, I don't like to put impurities in my body. Do you feel like it's keeping you alive? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I think that if I wasn't on Victoza, like, God only knows where I would be. You know, and I actually just went through an episode over the summer because of stress. And, you know, as you know, how, how I work in the summer and what, what it's like out there, it's very stressful. And I had to get stuff taken my... um plates and pins taken out of my elbow and they didn't want to operate on me because my a1c which is basically like um the average of your of your diet your numbers like i like to stay in the sixes low sevens sixes it was 8.6 i called my doctor crying because i was so upset and he's like don't cry he goes because you're gonna you're stressing yourself out and it's gonna it's gonna keep doing is listen you're gonna come to me next week I'll write you a note to get the operation and we'll figure it out. So I actually had the operation about two months ago and I went back to him last week and my A1C is down to 6.7. Yay. That's huge. Yeah. Congrats. Thank you. So you mentioned how, you know, in the summer you are on your feet the whole time, all summer, nonstop in different shops, several shops that you run. And so how do you manage your health and running a business? Especially when you can't eat your own bagels. <laughs> I know. It's like the funniest thing. I'm allergic to gluten and my family does bagels. But we do have the seeds for everybody, so which is like so fun because I'll take like lettuce and I'll put locks and onion and, and the seeds and then I'll put avocado in. So you enjoy all the fixings. Exactly. I, I still can enjoy it, but at least at least I have good smell so I can smell as I'm making everybody's food. <laughs> When we go into the shop, it's like, oh, Amanda's here. Yes, she makes the best bagel. Like her sandwiches are better than everyone else there. No offense to your team. No, no, my team's great, but it's in my blood. It's in my blood. It's what I'm good at. Like 
you know, I never, I never finished college and I, I knew I didn't need it. And I've always loved to cook and I've always loved to feed people. So like to watch people enjoy what I make them like gives me immense satisfaction. And so how do you navigate running the businesses that you do, the many different shops that you run and your health? To be honest with you, it's I'm always learning. There's some days where like I always carry something with me, like whether it be like a protein bar or, or like a bag of nuts. Sometimes I don't even carry something and I get to the, one of the stores and I'm like, like, am I having an anxiety attack or like, why don't I feel good? I'm like, oh, wait, because I haven't eaten today. You know, so I'm still, I, you know, this whole thing that just happened with my A1C really got me to step back and say like, OK, Amanda, like you can't. And, and it's the same thing when it was with tennis. And the same thing in life, like if I can't be healthy and I can't take care of myself, I'm no use and no good to anybody. So I, I'm not a selfish person, but in any case, and you know, like sometimes you have to take a step back and be selfish because if you're not, how are you going to help anyone else? Absolutely. Well, and you can't be a good boss to your employees and good teammate and take care of your customers if you're not in good shape. I mean, that's so important for you. And I don't think it's a selfish thing. It may feel that way. But I think it's if you're not the best version of yourself, how can you help anyone else? Yes, exactly. It's it's just sometimes it's hard because like, I tend to put people before myself. And it's something that I'm start. I'm learning to be like, you know, even just before my blood sugar was low. And I'm like, well, let's just we could just do it. I'll deal with it later. And you're like, no, like <laughs> of all podcasts for you to be on and topics to be discussing. I was not letting you not go out and grab something to drink to take care of yourself. Right. Yeah. So like I was like, oh, my God, like, but I'm on Harper's time. <laughs> like we, got, I, we make it work. Yeah, no, we did. We made it work. So last summer, you also opened something, a spinoff from your bagels which is Beach Bowls, which is based in Bridgehampton. What made you branch off from just bagels? Well, I'm a uh, self-proclaimed health freak. And I've always, I love food. Like I love, and I love to play with it. And I have a very good friend who's a tremendous massage therapist. And she actually got me through my foot injury because I had to regrow my ligaments. So she taught me how to eat to heal. And from that, you know, I'm a firm believer that you can eat to heal. You could eat for vitality and all these other things. And um, so I always wanted to do something with like a health spin. And, you know, we introduced like acai bowls and pitaya bowls into a few of the stores, which are, are making a killing. Um, I actually make my own gluten-free granola and I pride on it being like five ingredients or less. And it's also energetically balanced by an acupuncturist that I have down in Florida. So it's actually good for digestion. So he helped me with the recipe so that you get the benefits and good digestion. So we opened a Hamptons Beach Bowls and uh, we do acai bowls and smoothies and uh, juices and healthy lunches. And um, actually, now that um, the winter is coming, one of our stores in Bridgehampton, the pizza place, they have this tremendous following with this hot food bar. And we have two ladies that cook, but they cook with like, they cook healthy, you know, so they'll make like stews with fish and chicken. So we actually added like tacos and salads um, a few weeks ago. And are people into it? Yeah, people are into it. Like, I mean, it's a tough town regardless in the winter. Um, but yeah, like it's, where do you, where do you get tacos in the Hamptons? 
and really like and question. reasonably priced tacos you know like it's not like you're not coming in and getting a gourmet taco like you're getting an authentic taco so make sure you check out beach bowls in bridgehampton and obviously all the goldbergs around <laughs> the hamptons and north fork and so how public are you about your health and how much you share personally and professionally i'm an open book you know i want to make people aware because if you don't share your story and people don't know what you went through, like, who are they going to talk to? Um, I'm actually, now that the season's calmed down, I'm going to um, look into even starting support groups for kids with diabetes. Because I've been hearing a lot of kids out east have, um, have been diagnosed in the past year. So I would really love to give these kids, like, a somewhere to go. And, and also, it's nice because... I know when I was young, if I had a a, a woman or a, a young professional that had what I had, I would be like, wow, like, you lo- you lead a normal life. Like, I can be like you. So, you know, I, I also work very closely with the Diabetes Research Institute, and I just want to make everybody aware. And I want everybody to, like, like your this podcast. Like, this is fantastic. People get to talk about, talk about things that people might not want to talk about and it gives the people that don't want to talk a voice and maybe the opportunity to use their voice well and i think it sounds like it was really valuable for you growing up to have the support system so how can you give back to people as well and so do you have people that you're connected to now that have diabetes that can relate to what you're going through not really i actually went through all of this on my own But I'm really lucky to have my parents, my friends, like, I don't know where I would be without them. Like, the way they they were there for me when I cried, you know, I I was actually just talking to my friend Jess. She, um, about, you know, I told her about the podcast and I was like, you know, I remember when you made me sit in front of a mirror in my bra and underwear and stare at myself and, and to make sure I... I told myself that I love myself because I just hated everything about me at that point. And I, like the the depression was so it was so real and if it wasn't for these people that that picked me up off the ground like who knows. You know, and if I would have had like something like this to listen to where people were like going through something and couldn't figure it out and all these doctors and this and that like it's like oh my god there's someone else like me out there. Exactly. That's exactly why I started this. Well, my dear, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and share your experience. How can people learn more about you and connect with you? Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm, it's nice to see you outside the store where we can actually sit and like. <laughs> it's, been, it, it, I don't, it's been years since we've done something well, like yeah, this. Yeah, no, we have to do this more often too. And, and even not, not behind a microphone. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm on Instagram, um, Lamanda the Panda. It's my. It's a cute little nickname that I've had since college. Um, and anybody can really message me there. I'm really open. If anybody has any questions or wants support, wants to talk, wants to tell me, wants to share a story about diabetes or injury or tennis, like I would love to hear from anybody. I would love I love to share and be an ear or a shoulder for someone that needs it. 
Thank you. We'll be sure to include the link to her Instagram and obviously the original Goldbergs on Instagram and Beach Bowls on Instagram. So you guys can check it out and make sure you try out all the delicious foods that Amanda and her incredible family are making. And thank you. Thank you. And don't be shy. If anybody wants to say, hey, I heard you. Is Amanda here? I would love to talk. (laughs) Yay. Good. Thanks again. I'm really excited to share that I've teamed up with The Mighty to create a community for you, my listeners, to connect with me, other listeners, past and upcoming guests, and people living with or affected by invisible illness. If you want to have a conversation about the topics addressed on the show, head over to mgty.co slash made visible. Again, that's mgty.co slash made visible. And I hope to connect with you over there. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.